Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Hebrews chapter 10, the book of Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to continue our study through the New Testament and a continuation from our study from last week here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, for the law. Now, remember, this is the law, the old covenant, the fleshly commandments. This is the law which is obsolete for the person, for the soul who abides in Christ. Christ. It's very important to remember the law is not over. The law is still in effect, but the law is a tutor to bring a person to Jesus Christ. Now, once a person abides in Jesus Christ, the law is not meant for a righteous person. Very important to understand and remember. And so we see here in verse one, for the law having a shadow. Now, we already looked at in, in Hebrews chapter 8 that how the law is a shadow, but at the same time, this is something that Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Remember, if you've been walking with us for a while, how the law is a shadow, yes, but the substance is Christ. Very important to remember. Now, I mean, just in this phraseology, there are little indicators that maybe the writer of Hebrews is Paul. Perhaps the writer of Hebrews is Paul. Uh, you know, there are little ebbs and flows and tempo uh, to the to the to the texts of, of Hebrews, where it gives little indications that maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is Paul. Nobody knows who the writer is. There are people who they have an idea of who the writer of Hebrews are. Me personally, I think it's. Paul or somebody who was in a tiny bubble of Paul. And so here we are in verse 1, the law having a shadow of the good things to come. Remember, until the seed. Do you remember our study in Leviticus, how it came with the warning label? And then we did, you know, always pointing to New Testament truths, especially in Galatians, how uh, the law uh, uh, until the seed and the seed has come. Now, remember, it is the law that is the additive. Remember Galatians chapter three, verse 19, the law is the additive until the seed. You see, and the seed is the word, which we get from Luke chapter eight, verse 11. And in John one, verse 14, it also reveals that the word became flesh. You see, the seed is Jesus. And the law in verse 1 here, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. Now, notice what the law is not. The law is not the likeness of the things. Now, this is a big deal. This is huge. Because do you remember our study in Leviticus, how we look at the grain the bread and the lamb. Now, how how is grain not grain? How is bread not bread? It seems like an odd question. How is it that grain cannot be grain and bread cannot be bread and a lamb isn't a lamb? How is this possible? But remember, remember, it is the Pharisees who accuse Jesus of blasphemy because when Jesus was speaking about the bread. They thought he was talking about cannibalism when he was the one who said, he, Jesus, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Those are the words of Jesus. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, you hear that, but with ears to hear, 
it's completely different than what the carnal mind would think. The carnal mind would think like, what? Eats his flesh, drinks his blood. That's cannibalism. That is against what the Bible says. That is against what Torah teaches. You see, but according to the spirit, you realize. You see, the Pharisees, they didn't understand what Jesus was, was talking about because they were blind. They were deaf. They didn't understand that Moses himself wrote of Jesus. The Pharisees, they even says, oh, you know, we're hardcore. We, we follow Moses. And Jesus, he's the one who says, how can you believe in Moses? How can you follow Moses? Because Moses, he wrote about me. But when you understand who the bread of life is, and then you hear Jesus say, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's not talking about the carnal ways. He's not talking about according to the flesh. He's speaking deeper. You see? Moses wrote of Jesus. And so we see here in Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we see the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Well, what things? Well, look at the grain. Look at the bread. Look at the lamb. Do you remember our study in Leviticus? How we look at offerings. We look at sacrifice. We look at different, like, like, like the grain. And the grain being the word. And all of a sudden, I mean, if you're listening for the first time, you, you know, everything is archived. Go back to those studies in Leviticus. And you'll see Leviticus came with a big warning label because there's also a seduction in Leviticus because there are certain things that, you know, the Lord says, you know, this is good. This is good. This is good. And in accordance to the old covenant in accordance to the rules of engagement within that covenant, they are absolutely good. But until the seed, it is also written until the seed and the seed is here. You see? And that's why Paul took a very, very, very big issue with the teachers of Galatia. Because the grain, the bread, the lamb, it's Jesus. You see, the literal, the, the, the literal grain, the, the months, the seasons, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, he says they're weak and beggarly and brings a person into bondage. You see, because the substance is Jesus. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. But about the beggarly elements, well, let's continue in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, you know, the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, can never, can never, I'll say it again, can never with these same sacrifices, the literal, not the substance of what you know, those with eyes and th those with eyes to see, not the substance of what the ears can hear. He says here in verse 1, the writer can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. This, this is a big deal. This is huge. Because 
these elements, these sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus and Numbers and that we see in the Old Testament, these sacrifices, according to the flesh, how many times do you hear us say in our studies in the Old Testament, observe Israel according to the flesh, according to the flesh, according to the flesh. And these sacrifices that we read and we see in the Old Testament according to the Old Covenant can never, with these same sacrifices in verse 1, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. You see, those weak and barely elements. They can never make those who approach perfect. Never. Let me say something to my Jewish friends and even my Hebrew roots friends. When you hear us say jump ship, it is not said to hurt you. It's said to save you. You see, to Hebrew roots especially, you you are commanded to move on to perfection. Yet the practice therein in the Hebrew roots with the beggarly, you cannot move on to perfection. Why? Because verse 1 reveals that those things can never make a person perfect. Never. And that was the issue that Paul took with the saints in Galatia. Why? You know, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Jesus Christ. Remember our study in Galatians? Why are you going to go back to those weak and beggarly elements when the seed has Come, the seed has died and the seed has risen again. How are you going to go back to those weak and beggarly elements, which, according to the full counsel of the word of God, can never make those who approach perfect? You see, we're commanded to move on to perfection. But there's a very, very, very specific formula on how a person does it. It's very easy. It's very simple. It's intricate, but it's simple. Jesus is the one who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not hard. It's humans that like to complicate things. It's the pseudodelphos. It's the servants of Satan that like to complicate things. And they, oh, you know, they, they make it sound all, you know, nice and pretty. They wrap it up in a bow, but it's poison. Remember our study in Galatians? It's very important to understand what the word of God teaches. You see, and... When we know, when we see, when we understand that these beggarly elements can never make a person perfect, this also reveals something else, especially to my Hebrew roots friends. Not only are you in a state of arrested development, you are also in a state of disobedience. To my Hebrew roots friends, you are in a state of disobedience. You see? I mean, when you, when, when you wrap up our study from Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and here we are in chapter 10, we're not talking about the order of Aaron. We're not talking about the tribe of Levi. We're talking about something entirely different of Judah, of Melchizedek. And that change of priesthood, of necessity, there is a change 
of the law. Do you remember? I mean, we just studied this a couple weeks ago. Sometimes my Hebrew roots friends, they get very, very angry. The, the majority, as it is right now, the majority of death threats I get are from the Hebrew roots because they apply the law. Oh, how dare you say that? Now we're going to kill you. They apply the law. Different rules of engagement. They attempt to apply the law. I mean, they, they haven't applied the law yet because, I mean, here we are. <laughs> but to my Hebrew roots friends, repent and live. And let us together move on to perfection because we know what the word of God reveals, that those weak and beggarly elements can never, with those sacrifices, as is revealed here in Hebrews 10 verse 1, can never, with those sacrifices which are offered continually year by year, make those approach perfect. You see, understand what verse 2 says. For then, why would they not have ceased to be offered? So let's put this in perspective here. You and me, let's get in our time machine. And you and me, let's go back to the era of Judges. Judges chapter 2 era. It just so happens that we're studying Judges 2 and 3. We just studied chapter 3 on Wednesday. And let's go back to that era. And I hate to say it like this, but let's say we're in a state where the Lord became forgotten in us. You and me, we're in the camp of Israel and the Lord became forgotten in us. And we did partake and we did worship Baal. I hate to say it like this, but track with me. And with a beautiful judge by the name of Othniel, remember Judges 3? We realize the error of our ways. And we're made right with God once again. Remember, this is pre-seed. We're, we, we took a time machine and we're in the Judges 2, Judges 3 era. And as a result of a, a judge that the, that the Lord raised up, a judge because Israel, the camp that we're in, the Lord became forgotten and we were sucked up in that. And then we see, wow, the Lord is with Othniel. And then we realize, oh my goodness, we're in the wrong and they were made right with God once again, according to the law. And so this is precede. So our state of being right with God is through the law. Now, if righteousness could come through the law, if righteousness could come through the law, then we're done. We're done. We will never worship Baal again because we're made right with God through the law. We're done. Done deal. You see? I mean, this, this could seem as quite nice in one regard, but there's a problem. It's wrong. How do we know that it's wrong? Well, the proof is in the pudding because do you remember our study on Wednesday? It just so happens. It just so happens. It just so happens. Do you remember our study on Wednesday? What happened when Othniel died? Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And these are the early batches of judges that, you know, don't forget there was Moses and Joshua. Joshua died. Moses died. But yet we already see the death of Moses, the death of Joshua, the death of these judges that the Lord raised up for such a time as this in their day. We already see how there's an inability of the law. Inability. 
to make perfect. I mean, you look at, you know, Moses when he would, his farewell discourse, the book of Deuteronomy. In his farewell discourse, telling Israel, telling the people, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Joshua telling the people, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Othniel telling the people, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. What happens? The people forget. You see? But if righteousness could come through the law, then just like the example, you and me, we get in our time machine. We get, we're, we're in that Judges 2 era. We get sucked up into the, the ways into that camp and Judges 2 and we forget the Lord. And then all of a sudden we're made right with the Lord because of, you know, the who he raised up, Othniel. And it's, that, that should be a done deal right there, man. If righteousness, if, if rightness with God could come through the law, then we're done. Falling away, worshiping Baal, worshiping Ashtoreth, worshiping Molech, that will never, that will always be a non-factor. That's if rightness with the Lord could come through the law. But that's not the case. That is not the case. Because already we're in Judges 2 and 3, and we're going to be in 4 and 5, and we're going to see the ups and the downs where a generation forgets the Lord. How the Lord becomes forgotten. We already see it. And that's, you know, that, that's back in that day. But what about today? It still happens. Don't forget apostasy. It's prophesied to happen. And it will happen. And it is happening. And it's going to get worse. Apostasy. It's where the Lord becomes forgotten. You see, we have no, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. There's the repetitive nature. The repetitive nature of the ebb and flow of mankind according to the flesh. According to the flesh. According to the flesh. And to be right with God according to the old covenant. Already loopholes are exposed because these sacrifices of old, the weak and beggarly, they can never make those who approach perfect. That's what is revealed here in verse 1. Can never make those who approach perfect. But hold the phone there. You see, you and me were commanded to move on to perfection. And if you and me were told, move on to perfection, how is it that these sacrifices of the old covenant can never make perfect? It's because they're the shadow. The substance is Christ. And in Christ, the fulfillment of the law and abiding in him, that's how we move on to perfection. It's in Christ. You see? And we see here in verse 2, For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
I mean, just like the example we gave where you and me, we get in the time machine. It's like, okay, we've we've forgotten the Lord and we're made right with the Lord. And okay, it's a done deal. We're, we're never going to forget the Lord again because we're made right with the Lord through the law. But that's not the case. It doesn't work that way. Because what happens? These sacrifices, as we see in verse 1, continually, continually, continually. Already we see the loopholes. Already we see the limitations. Already we see the inability of the law. Remember in Galatians, the law is the additive. It was added because of trespass, because of sin. And notice, in verse 2, for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. You see, the inner man, the inner woman, the consciousness of sin. It's not at the surface level. It's deeper. If the law was able to perfect, there would be no consciousness of sin because the inner man and the inner woman would be cleansed. That's if the law, if the law, if, if, if the law could make perfect. And if the law could make a soul perfect, then I just echo the words of beautiful Brother Paul. If the law could make a soul perfect, then Jesus died in vain. You see? Jesus did not die in vain. It's the law that cannot make perfect. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is teaching. But in those sacrifices, he says in verse 3, the writer, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see? It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Understand, there is only one sacrifice that can take away sins. There is only one. And I'll echo beautiful, beautiful Brother John, John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see? The blood of bulls can't do that. The blood of goats can't do that. The blood of Christ, that's what he does. He takes away the sins of the world. You see, takes away, takes away. Takes away from you and me and all who believe. Did he make it vanish? You see, did he make it vanish? It didn't vanish. The penalty of sin for you and me I mean, he did make vanish for, for you and me, but it didn't vanish. For you and me, not applicable. He took it upon himself. You see, the penalty for sin. He took it upon himself. He didn't make it vanish like a blanket statement, like a boom, it's gone. No, boom, for you and me, it's gone. But what did he do? He took it upon himself. He paid the price. Understand the wages of sin is still death. The wages of sin is always death. 
You see? And my death and your death as recompense for sin. He took it. He took it. For you and me, he made it vanish. But it didn't vanish completely because he took it upon himself as a lamb to the slaughter. You see? And a lot of when I have these conversations with the Hebrew roots, oh, I refuse to be wishy-washy. Because they can see a whole lot of loose Christians saying, oh, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And what they're doing is they take advantage of God's grace. And a lot of Hebrew roots, that's, that's part of the seduction of Hebrew roots. Because you have Christians who see that, oh my goodness, the church is going crazy and you know people are taking advantage of God's grace. So I'm going to go to Hebrew roots where there's heavy government. I'm going to go to Calvinism where there's heavy gov government. And I get it. I understand. I mean, when, 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 when a church goes crazy and it's revealed that the pastor is defunct, well, something has to happen. But the answer is not to run to Hebrew roots because that's wrong. The answer is not to run to Calvinism because that's wrong. The formula is completely off base. And I have these conversations, but I can't stay in that church because they're crazy. So I go over here where there's more church government, more order. We don't see the craziness of what we see of the flesh, but there's craziness of doctrine. It is not sound. And if you're in the Hebrew Roots Movement, or you're Calvinist, and that's the reason why you left, you know, church number one or church number two, because you see how they're going crazy and you desire heavy government. But understand, they are also in the wrong. Because in the law, a person is outside of Christ. Remember our study through Galatians. In the law, a person is outside of Christ, but through loose living and taking advantage of God's grace, a person is also outside of Christ. It's through lukewarmness. And when there is lukewarmness, the Bible warns that person will be vomited out. Remember, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out in the body and expelled out of the body. You see, a lot of Christians, they rail against Hebrew roots, but they do so hypocritically. And a lot of Hebrew roots rail against the lukewarm, but they also do so hypocritically. Because you have Christians, oh, I'm not, I'm not Hebrew roots, we're saved by grace. I'm not Hebrew roots, we're saved by grace. Come on, let's go do, let's go do some crack. Well, it's a, it's a hypocrite. But then the Hebrew roots, oh, you guys are too lukewarm. You guys are too lukewarm and you're too wishy-washy. So I'm in Hebrew roots. Well, that's also a hypocrite. Because the doctrine isn't sound. If you're Hebrew roots, jump ship. If you're a loose believer, jump ship. If you're lukewarm, jump ship. And welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. We're in the last days. These things are prophesied to happen. People say, oh, after Revelation 4, you don't see the word church because the church has been raptured. No, the church is under judgment. You see the word saint in the book of Revelation. Why? Because it's the last day's model. You see? 
And judgment comes first to the church. Prophetically speaking, judgment comes first to the church. And I have these conversations with the Hebrew roots. And sometimes I get it. It's difficult for them because they it's, it's difficult because you see the craziness of the church. And you don't want that. You don't like that. And that is good. But then you look at Hebrew roots and you see, wow, look, there's you don't see the craziness. And that's true. You, you don't see craziness of, 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 of the, the fruit of the flesh. There is that element of, you know, I get that. But what about doctrine? What about doctrine, which is paramount? Because the doctrine reveals that the way of Hebrew roots is outside of Christ, the fulfillment of the law. Because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, in verse 5, when he came into this world, when he came into this world, he said, now we're about to look at some passages where the writer of Hebrews, he cites the Psalms, but the writer uses both Greek and Hebrew. He cites from the Septuagint. Now, this is another indicator of why the writer is likely Paul or somebody who was in his tiny bubble, because this is something that was very common for Paul to do. Now, I'll say something. I don't want to get off topic, but we'll, we'll you know, when, when you see, I'm in love with Paul. I love him so much. I'm so, in, I mean, I'm in love with the Lord and I'm in love with the Lord, the work that he did in and through Paul. And I'm in love with Paul so much because and people, people say, oh, you exalt Paul so much, you exalt. No, it's Christ in Paul. And don't forget, Paul is a pattern. Chloe's a pattern. Timothy's a pattern. Titus is a pattern. And when Paul writes and when he teaches and when he speaks, I mean, you remember, if you've been walking with us for a while, I mean, go back from to, to the book of Acts and you remember, I mean, you know, we, we, we've seen the hands and the feet and the words and the, 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 the words that he spoke and the words that he wrote. And you see something lovely. You see something glorious. You see something beautiful. Yes, there are certain levels of formalities, but there are also informalities. I'll give you an example. Look at Priscilla. Priscilla is a formal name for a sister in Christ, a sister in the Lord, a fellow tent maker. But when Paul speaks, he speaks of her as Prissa. So you see this informality, and I only say this as an example of informal dialecta but while also having respect for the subject matter like Priscilla. Now, when it comes to the text of Scripture, there is a level of informality regarding Hebrew and Greek, but there is never informality in handling the word and rightly dividing the word. I'll give you another example. <clears throat> Just so you know, I don't like taking these pauses to, I have a hot cup of coffee here and I don't like doing that because, but I have to, because my throat, you know, pray for my throat because it kills me. But, you know, so when you hear those pauses, it's, that's the reason why. But an example, if you were to hear me say like, um, 
Hola, ¿qué tal? Uh, if I were to say, hola, ¿qué tal? Come over here, bruh. If I were to say that, now, it sounds weird to hear that. But what I said in that statement, I used two languages. And in tandem with two languages, there was the formal and informal. There is a change in dialecta. There is informality, but there's no disrespect in any way, shape, or form. There's no disrespect. I mean, in some circles, it's highly respectful. But two languages were used, and in both languages, there was formal and informal. You see? Well, maybe not in both languages, but there was both the formal and informal. Two languages not disrespectful at all highly respectful now properly translated when i said that it's like you know you know hello how are you come over here my friend you know it's something like that you know properly translated in english but which you know you you hear that you know hello how are you come over here you know and you hear that it's understandable but you lose a little bit of warmth in formality and It's common with formality. For, for, formality. It's common. You see, to, gi to give you another example, say you and me are at a, a formal event, suit and tie if you're female, formal dress. And when we're among the people, it's very formal, very stuffy. You know, the, 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 the tie is, you know, tied against your neck. It's very stuffy and, you know, it's not our cup of tea and we're, we're, we're there. And we go into another area where it's just us. And when we're there in that area where it's just us, we can speak with no formality. We can, you know, loosen the tie, let our hair loose, eat chicken nuggets. And there's nothing formal at all. But there's also nothing disrespectful at all. In one sense, we're more respectful. You know why? Because we're real. It's no longer stuffy. We're real. Do you remember in our study in the book of Acts when the Roman guard says to Paul, the Roman guard says, I paid a lot of money to be a Roman citizen. How is it that you're a citizen? I paid a lot of money, top dollar. And I paid for years, I saved up the money and boom, I'm a Roman citizen. How are you able to say you're a Roman citizen? You know, I... I'm among the aristocracy. I have that. There's that elitist mentality that, you know, comes with being a Roman citizen. A, a, a lot of rights are afforded to the Roman citizens. And this is something that Paul denied. Paul responded, I'm Roman by birth. By birth, I'm Roman. He's Roman, he's a Jew. And he's hobnobbing with these menacing Christians? You see? Yes, but it's deeper. He's shepherding them. Now you might say, okay, we're getting off topic. We're getting off topic. But no, this is a big deal. This is important to understand because a lot of mockers today, they say, you see, you see, because we're going to look at verse 5 here. They say, you see, here is a contradiction. But... When the formula is right in you and me, and we, we together understand the Greek, we understand the Hebrew, we understand the Septuagint, we understand Torah, we understand the prophets, we understand usage, 
We understand text, context, and co-text. Midrash. When you understand informalities, which retains even augments a profound, profound, profound respect for the word of God, which isn't among the stuffy. It's solely among friends. Then you start to see something pretty beautiful. It's how the depths of intimacy are both hidden and revealed. You see, to the mockers, it's hidden. To the leaven, it's hidden. To the lukewarm, it's hidden. You see, take a parent, for example. A parent who goes into the pool with his or her child. A parent goes into the pool with baby girl. On one end of the pool is 20 feet deep. On the other end of the pool, it's six inches deep. There is a depth to the pool. Absolutely. But no parent would take that child to the deep end. Is it because the parent hates the child? No. The child isn't ready. That's why. The child is not ready. Now, do you remember Hebrews 6, our study in Hebrews 6, where, you know, we will leave the elementary things of Christ if God permits. If God permits, we will leave the elementary things of Christ if God permits. Now, the Calvinist points to the will of God and they do so in error. We have to look at the will of man and the will of woman who reckons the old man dead, who reckons the old woman dead, who lays aside the things that so easily ensnares. It's the saint who refuses to be leavened and chooses to be among the remnant and chooses to walk as a sweet aroma unto the Lord. Remember the challenge we gave in Leviticus? To think of your life. And I speak individually now. To consider your life an aroma. Now the question is this. What aroma do you want to present to the Lord? What aroma do you want to present to the Lord? Remember, the Lord, He desires us to move on to perfection. And when you reckon the old man dead or the old woman dead and you refuse to be leavened, you refuse to be lukewarm and you're, you're, the very essence of your life is a sweet aroma unto the Lord, you, me, together living sacrificially unto the Lord, do you really think, do you really think our Father in heaven, hallowed be his name, do you really think that he won't take you to the deep end? Because I tell you the truth. He will. He will. And there's a lot of mockers in these last days. These are truths that are hidden from them. But they're revealed to the remnant. 
And so you might want, you know, I was kind of hesitant to explain this, but we have to understand these things in preparation for the bridegroom because he is coming. He is coming. As surely as the Lord lives, he is coming. And we have to be ready. In verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he says, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now, you might be listening. You might be Jewish and listening. You might be Hebrew roots and listening. And these are very, very difficult concepts. Now, listen, if you're listening and these are difficult concepts, remember in chapter six, you know, you know, the, we will move on from the elementary things if the Lord permits. Now, this isn't a bad thing where, you know, if this is confusing, this isn't a bad thing at all. But I say this, if these are difficult things for you to grasp, go back to our studies. They're archived. Go back to our studies in first Corinthians chapter one. And listen to all those messages from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to all those messages and get yourself caught up to here. Because by the time you get to Hebrews 10, after listening to those messages, you'll get it. You'll understand. And so we see here in verse 5, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now notice, how could sacrifice and offering be undesirable to God? How could sacrifice and offering be undesirable to the Lord? Because we have Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. We have Torah. And it is cited in Torah as being good. Sacrifice and offering, good to the Lord, pleasing to the Lord. But how can it be that sacrifice and offering is undesirable? When the Bible absolutely says it's a good thing. You see, the mockers will say, oh, you see, contradiction, contradiction. But when you read the entirety of the word of God, the entirety of the Old Testament, as New Covenant believers, something is revealed. Loopholes. Limitations of the law. Loopholes in the law. Inabilities of the law. Turn with me really quick to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Because in Isaiah chapter 1, Old Testament Old Covenant, observe Israel according to the flesh. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, it is written. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah, through a friend of God, the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 11, to what purpose, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Now, at the end of verse 12, it begs a question, but Lord, but Lord, it's commanded. It's you that require this from my hand. I mean, the, the, the question is posed in verse 12. Who has required this from your hand? And you, you read Torah. It's like, but Lord, this is what you commanded. You require this from my hand. 
You see, the very act of doing the law, bringing offerings, bringing the fat of fed cattle, the, the burnt offering, the ram. And the Lord is saying, listen, I do not delight in those things. Who has required this from your hand? And it's like, well, wait a second, Lord, it's in the Torah. You, it's you, you commanded this, Lord. And yet the Lord is saying, listen, I don't delight in it. Who has required this from your hand? You see, the law, the very act of doing the law, performing the law, already, we're in the Old Testament. This is Isaiah 1, but it is revealed the inefficiencies, the inabilities because the courts are trampled. You say, wait a second, Lord, I'm doing this because you commanded. But the Lord testifies through his friend Isaiah the prophet. Not like that. Not like that. Because there's something deeper that needs to be addressed. You know what it is? The heart. The heart. The mind. The inner man. The inner woman. The conscience. And the law can't touch that. Can't. There are doorways. Remember the, the chamber where... In the law, a person learns to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as it is written. But in learning to fear the Lord, it is also learned, the next chamber, to trust the Lord. I mean, we've given examples. If you've been walking with us for a while, we've given examples. And then in trusting the Lord, the next chamber, learn to love the Lord. And that's a deep chamber, falling deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in love. But then there's another chamber. And that chamber is faith. Very few in the Old Testament reach that inner, inner, inner chamber of faith. Isaiah did. Hannah did. Samuel did. Very, very few people. Joshua did. Moses did. Very few people reach that chamber. The vast majority, just as we studied in Hebrew, in, in the book of Hebrews, they didn't have that mixture of faith. No mixture of faith. And so we're in Isaiah 1 still. And in Isaiah 1, in verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices. What? Bring normal, no more futile sacrifices? But Lord, it's commanded in Torah to bring sacrifice. And in bringing sacrifice, you are the one, Lord, who says that it's a good thing. How is it that all of a sudden it is revealed, Lord, that it is not a good thing? Did you change your mind, Lord? Now, you, if you're Jewish or Hebrew roots, you might be like, you know, why does this guy dare pose these questions to the Lord? Don't forget, it's the Lord who says, come, let us reason together. But let's be straight up. Lord, you're saying, you know, who has, who has required this from your hand? You did, Lord. Bring no more futile sacrifices, but Lord, you say it's good. Did you change your mind, Lord? The Lord never changes. Remember, it is written, the Lord never changes. So what happened? 
It's the people. The people changed their heart and the Lord became forgotten. Bring sacrifices, but not like that. Make your offerings, bring offerings, but not like that. You see? And when I say not like that, I'm speaking of the inner man, the inner woman, the conscience. You see? Because you want to worship Molech, you want to worship Baal, you want to worship the Asteres, and still make the offerings? No, not like that. Wrong formula. Not like that. Remember, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You say, well, that's Old Testament. But no, they're New Testament truths and application. Making offerings to the Lord. If you're going to grudgingly give to the Lord, don't do it. Not like that. Wrong formula. But if you're going to give cheerfully, praise be to the Lord like that. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. But you want to be grudging? Oh, I don't. I gotta do this. I gotta. I gotta do. And you're grudging. You know, like, like, I, I'd, I'd rather. I'd rather buy a new TV. I'd rather. You know. I. I I'd rather. You know. Uh, 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 you know. Go to the movies. I'd rather go to a baseball game. I'd rather do this. But I gotta. You know. But put five dollars here, and you're grudging about it. No, don't. Don't give. Wrong formula. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. These are things that the law can't touch. Because it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the soul. And in verse 13 here in Isaiah 1, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons? The new moons? The Sabbaths? And the calling of assemblies? I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Yeah, it's sacred. Absolutely. But not when the formula is wrong. Your new moons in verse 14 and your appointed feasts. Notice there that that instruction is given by the Lord in Torah. The new moons, the appointed feasts, that's given by the Lord. But here in verse 14, he's saying your new moons and your appointed feasts. You see, what's the difference? They're doing it. They're observing these feasts and festivals and the new moons and they're observing it. The Sabbath, the assembly, they're observing it. But when we say formula, what is the formula of the heart? What is the formula of the mind? And of these new moons, your new moons in verse 14 and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. In verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Remember, the Lord is reactionary. I mean, remember in Deuteronomy how in one chapter the Lord says, I will never forsake you. But in the same chapter, he says, I will forsake you. Did the Lord change his mind? No, not at all. The people changed their heart. These are things that we're reading and studying in our study on Wednesdays through the book of Judges. How the Lord becomes forgotten. A generation that doesn't know the Lord. 
And here in verse 15, you spread out your hands, but if the formula is not right, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, the formula is not right, I will not hear. Why? He says here, your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of blood. And in our study in Hebrews 10, in verse 5, how can Hebrews 10.5 say of sacrifice and offering that God did not desire? When it's given by God to Moses to tell the people. Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, if I'm a straight D student, remember we just talked about this several weeks ago, but if I'm a straight D student, a tutor is desirable because I'm a D student. I'm flunking out. But if I'm a straight A student, a tutor is then undesirable. But what about if I strive to be an A student? A tutor is undesirable because I'm going from, you know, I'm, I'm moving on to perfection in becoming an A student. A tutor is undesirable. You see? And I have these conversations with Hebrew roots of late quite frequently. It's difficult for them to understand these truths. Because I get it. I get it. I see the craziness. I can see, and you, we can see the craziness in the church today. I mean, churches that are have become an abomination. And it hurts me. It pains me to say that. But it's a sign of the times. It's a sign of the times as apostasy is spreading. And apostasy is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. A generation that doesn't know the Lord. A church becoming Laodicean. Instead of becoming Philadelphia, they become Laodicea. Instead of becoming Smyrna, they become Laodicea. Where the Lord is on the outside. Now with Laodicea, does the Lord forget them? No. He's... If you hear me in... Allow, if you hear me and open, I will come in and sup with you. But he's knocking. And that's why we say jump ship. That's why we say jump ship. You see? And so we see here in verse 5, let's go back to Hebrews 10. And in Hebrews 10, verse 5, yes, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You see, the loopholes, the inability, the inefficiencies of the law. But a body you have prepared for me. Moses, the prophets, they knew. They knew. They had a, a special mixture in that inner chamber of faith, the chamber that very few entered in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant. Moses absolutely wrote about Jesus, but it requires ears to hear in order to understand. In verse 6, in burnt 
offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, no, the writer explains here. I mean, the, the things that we just read, the writer of Hebrews explains in verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which the offer, which, which are offered according to the law. Remember the fleshly commandments? The fleshly commandments? Israel according to the flesh? And then in verse 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Notice, he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Remember, remember, since there was a change of priesthood from Aaron, it's not the order of Aaron, it's the order of Melchizedek. It's not the tribe of Levi. It's the tribe of Judah. And by this change, there also of necessity is a change of the law. Remember in Hebrews 7 verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Remember, we just studied this several weeks ago. Now, if you're listening, I have to say this Again, if you're listening, and these are difficult concepts to grasp, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And from there, start from 1 Corinthians 1 and all the way to Hebrews 10. And when you get to Hebrews 10, you'll get it. You'll understand. The law of faith. Remember, if you've been walking with us for a while, remember, I said Romans 3, verse 27. The law of faith is the law of Christ. That's Galatians 6, verse 2. And don't forget, every priest has both sacrifice and gifts. Remember Hebrews 8? We just studied that. Pastors today who say that gifts are over. That was for the early church. Oh, that was for 2,000 years ago. It's not for today. Largely among the Calvinists, the Reformed theology theory, the Presbyterians. Oh, the gifts are over. It's not for today. It was for the early church. By what authority do they speak? Because every priest has both sacrifice and gifts. Every priest has both sacrifice and gifts, including the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. By what order do these Mere men speak. By what authority do they speak? They speak about things they know nothing about. They know nothing about. Oh, but he's got his degree. He's got his doctorate in theology. That's nice. They speak on things they know nothing about. And the Christians, they put up with it. You see, in verse nine, in saying, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, he takes away the first, the first covenant 
that he may establish the second, the better covenant. Remember? By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. See, male lamb without blemish. Remember our study in Leviticus? A male lamb without blemish. It's the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see? Once for all. Now, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Episcopals, they teach universalism based on, you know, once for all. The Calvinists and Reformers, they rail against universalism and teach limited atonement. They're all wrong. Because this gift of sanctification, it's got to be received. Remember the example we gave, you know? You, you know, you knock at my door and you have a gift for me. I say, hey, who are you? Get out of here. Yeah, you had the gift, but I didn't receive it. You knock on my door. I open the door. Hey, I told you to get out of here. And you know, you're, you're like insistent. And I say, okay, leave it on the doorstep and then get out of here. I still didn't receive the gift. And you knock on the door. I open the door. Okay, what, 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 what is it? And you just tell me, listen, this is for you. And if I take it, and it's nice and nicely done and perfectly wrapped, nice little beautiful bow, I undo the bow, I open it, and my eyes become as big as saucers. I don't know you. You're a stranger to me. I don't know you. And yet you have this beautiful gift for me, something that I you did, I never shared it with anybody. I never shared my deepest desire with anybody. And yet here you are. I didn't pay for it. It's free to me. And it's the most precious, precious gift I've ever received in my life. And then I say, hey, come on in. And then I fall in love with you. You see? The universalism, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Episcopals, how they teach universalism, it's wrong. But then you have the Calvinists and Reformers and Presbyterian, how they rail against universalism, but they're also wrong. Because the gift must be received, and the gift is salvation. The gift was there. You knocked on my door. You had the gift. But I said, hey, go fly kite. Get out of here. You had the gift. The gift was there, but I never received it. But once I do receive it, I realize that, whoa, you're not just the average bear. You're different. I meant who but anybody who loves me would even think about giving me that gift. And you give me that gift. And then I fall in love with you. You see? How much more with our Father in heaven, hallowed be his name, who sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
for whosoever shall believe. That free gift. He's there. Salvation. It's there. Some people say, go fly a kite. But the Lord didn't call me to teach the dead. I teach the living. And if you're listening and you have not received the gift of salvation, you do so right now, right here, right now. Hit pause, listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. You commit your life to Christ right here, right now, point blank. I mean, I say point blank, you know, <laughs> I don't mean point blank like, you know, you better do it. I mean, point blank like balls in your court. You have a choice to make. You have a choice to make straight up. God loves you. The gift of salvation. But the balls in your court, he doesn't make robots. He doesn't make robots. You and me, we have to respond to his love. You don't know Christ, you respond to his love by receiving him. You do know Christ, we respond to his love in loving him back and obeying him, walking according to his word. You see? And so we continue here in verse 11 and every priest stands and this is of levi in the order of aaron every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins of the order of aaron of the tribe of levi the beggarly elements the blood of goats and rams they can never take away sins but this man, in verse 12, but this man, this is of Judah in the order of Melchizedek. But this man, after he had offered, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. You see, a coalition formed against God. Today we see the rise of globalization and one world initiatives and a coalescing of global powers. But it's nothing new. We've seen alliances formed against God in our studies in the book of Joshua, in Judges. Where are they now? Where are they now? Where, where are these alliances that we read about in Joshua and Judges? Where are they now? Who's talking about them? They're non-existent. In this rise of globalization and one world initiatives understand that all the government will be placed on his shoulders. This, Jesus Christ. Unto us a child is born. Government will be on his shoulders. There will be that transferring of order. And it is a pending matter. Soon, but as of today, a pending matter. I want to say something to the enemy of God. I, I used to be in your camp. 
And I jump ship. And this way is much better. I used to be an enemy of God. And I say jump ship to you as well. And for you to join me. For you, you hit pause. You listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. And you commit your life to Christ right here, right now. We see here in verse 13, speaking about this man from capital M in verse 12, this man speaking about Jesus. He's at the right hand of God in verse 13 from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering, one offering. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, perfected forever. Remember, the law cannot perfect. The sacrifice of the law cannot perfect. But Jesus, by one offering in verse 14, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, this is where Christians get into trouble. Christians get into trouble here because, oh, look, you know, the, the Bible says he has perfected forever. Therefore, I am perfected forever. Hold the phone there, my friend. The full verse begs a question. Are you being sanctified? Because, yes, he has perfected forever. No period. By one offering, he has perfected forever. No period. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Well, let's pose the question. Are you being sanctified? Let's be straight up. Straight up. Are you being sanctified? It's a serious question. Are you being sanctified? Sanctified. Hagiazo in the Greek. It's not a noun. It's a verb which is to make holy, to make consecrated. You see, you can be on milk, and milk is beautiful, but milk is for babies. But are you being made holy and consecrated to where you won't stay on milk? To where we can do away with the elementary things? Till we can go from one end of the pool, the baby side, to the other side of the pool where it's deep. You see? Let us together continue to be made holy. You and me together moving on to perfection. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, now the writer cites Jeremiah, another friend of God. In verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. You see, where is the heart? Where is the mind? I'll give you the answer. Not on the surface. The heart? Not on the surface. I mean, I can't touch your arm and touch your heart. No, because your heart is inside. Where is your mind? It's not on the surface. You remember how Paul says to the Corinthian saints, you have 10,000 teachers, but one father. He's speaking of himself. How he, how it translates like he birthed them. They're like his birth children, but he's male. He didn't give birth to them, but there is a spiritual birth. His children of faith. Look how he speaks to his children of faith. 
or writes to his children of faith. This is Paul, who is another friend. Already we've looked at, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, friends of God. And look at what Paul says of these saints in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 2, you, now remember, this is 2 Corinthians, so this is no longer 1 Corinthians, which means we're, this is remnant territory now, this isn't leaven territory, this is remnant territory, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. Remember, this is chapter 2. The leaven is no leaven. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart you see as for me i only i only echo the words of paul you beloved remnant are an epistle of christ you see when jeremiah testifies speaking in a thus saith the lord capacity he speaks of the heart and mind which addresses the inner man and the inner woman a realm that the law itself could not touch and quoting and citing jeremiah that's old testament that's old testament and already we see this inability of the law to perfect. The inability of the sacrifice according to the law, which in verse 11, can never, never take away sins. You see? In verse 15, the Holy Spirit also witnesses in Hebrews 10. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us that after he had said before. For, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. And then he adds in verse 17, then he adds, their sin and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these in verse 18, there is no longer an offering for sin. You see, this is why Paul said to the Galatian saints, how is it that you turn to the weak and beggarly elements? He says to them, I marvel that you are turning away from Christ so soon. You know what blows me away? In Galatians, or in the church of Galatia, picture the con men who entered the church. The servants of Satan presenting themselves as ministers of righteousness. Picture these guys. They spy you see, they come in secretly 
And they're being accepted as brothers. In the church of Galatia, they're being accepted as brothers. Oh, come here, brother. Come here, brother. And everything seems nice and neat. And oh, look, he's a teacher. Oh, look, he's a pastor. Come on, pastor. Teach us. Come on, teacher. Teach us. Remember our study in Galatians where Paul says, listen, I don't care. I don't care about their doctorate. I don't care about their master's degree. I don't care about their seminary. What do they teach? What is the substance of what they teach? Because I don't care if they went here. I don't care if they went there. What do they teach? Is their doctrine sound? And they came into Galatia being accepted as brothers. And Paul refers to them as the pseudodelphos. Pseudo. Pseudo. Fake, 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 fake brothers. You see? They present themselves as ministers of righteousness. And they serve their father, the devil. They're imposters. And the Galatian saints, they put up with it. Oh, look, let's just show our Christian love. And oh, look, this guy, look, he's a nice little teacher. He's a nice teacher. He's got his doctorate here. He's got his master's here. He went to seminary here. Tell us, oh, pastor, what is the word for today, pastor? The whole time it's a con job. You see? To bring into bondage. You see? To seduce believers. Away from Christ. To seduce believers away from Christ. Remember the example we gave? You say, hey, baby girl, stay here. Stay here at home where it's nice and safe with you, baby girl. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. You leave. But when you leave, when you leave, the wolves are going to come in. They're going to come knocking at the door. Hey, baby girl, come over here. Look, I got this for you. Hey, come over here. This is so nice. And baby girl doesn't know. Baby girl doesn't understand that these wolves, they, they come in secretly. Baby girl doesn't understand that this con job is coming to kill her. Paul knows. Shepherds know. And... When you hear us say shepherds, we're not talking about run-of-the-mill shepherds. We're not talking about overseers and pastors, run-of-the-mill, the, you know, they have the pastor parking spot. We're talking about the biblical ones, the qualified ones, the ones who are tasked with protecting baby girl. Because those shepherds, they know the wolf and they kill the wolf, metaphysically speaking. But that's what they do. That's what they're tasked to do. That's why Paul was blown away. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from Jesus Christ, Galatian saints. Because they were being seduced into the law. They were being seduced to exit abiding Jesus Christ. Because to abide in the law is to exit Jesus Christ. You see? And we see here in verse... 17 or verse 18 now where there is remission of these there is no longer an offering for sin in verse 19 therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of jesus remember the veil was torn from top to bottom the veil was torn and the writer here is saying brethren have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of jesus by a new and living way. 
You see, it's not to enter the actual, you know, the actual built temple. No. I mean, 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. Jesus speaks of a different temple. He speaks of himself. By a new and living way, it is written in verse 20, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Tetelestai. <laughs> it is finished. Remember, Jesus says, destroy this temples and in three days I will raise it. And they, they were, what? It took us decades to build this and you, you can do it in three days. But he was speaking about him, his, himself. He was speaking about his body. You see, he is absolutely a strong tower and it's the righteous who run into him. And in so doing, we enter the holiest, the real holy of holies. You see? Not the shadow. Not the tabernacle we see in the wilderness. You see? Not the brick and mortar we see in Jerusalem. Shalem. The order of Melchizedek. The tribe, not of Levi, not of Levi the tribe of Judah. Can you see? Can you see? Because the veil, according to the carnal, that veil was torn. But there's another veil. That is his flesh in verse 20. And verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. Notice male covering. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Remember the sprinkling of blood from our studies in Leviticus? And as a shadow of things to come, there is a better sprinkling that addresses the inner man and the inner woman. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In verse 23, let us hold fast the, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another. Let us consider one another, Ecclesia. I mean, we just got done with our study. I mean, not just, but I mean, we got done with our study through the pastoral epistles. And you see these qualifiers, yes, for overseers, but the overseers who have a task. And the task is to oversee this ecclesia. And when the formula is right, it is so beautiful. Love feast. Straight up love feast. Ecclesia. Episunagage. Koinonia. It's a body of those who are being made holy. A body of those who are being consecrated. Not a social club. Not a social club. A fellowship of saints. Saints of the Most High. Redeemed by His only begotten Son, our Lord and King Jesus. 
The writer here in verse 24 says, let us consider one another, but for a reason. Let us consider one another, he says, in order to stir up love. You see, when the formula is right in a fellowship with godly men as overseers, stirring up love within Ecclesia, with love feast and gifts of the Spirit, remember, every priest sacrificing gifts. Some fellowships where they teach all oh, the gifts of the Spirit, that was for 2,000 years ago. It's not for today. That was for another dispensation. They're wrong. They're in the wrong. You cannot have love feast there. You cannot have love feast there. Biblically, according to sound doctrine, you cannot have love feast in those fellowships. Why? They deny the very gifts that the high priest brings. Our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he gives by his spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit. When you have this in a fellowship, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, there is no place on earth that can match such beauty. You see, stirring up love in a fellowship where the, where the formula is right, it is safe. It is holy. It is beautiful. But to stir up love with leaven and or the wolf, with the hireling and pseudodelphos, very, very dangerous. You see, when the formula is wrong in a fellowship, look at what cannot be done. I mean, here we see you know, in, 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 in verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love. Now, in Philippi, beautiful. This is so beautiful to, for the fellowship in Philippi. Go back and listen to our study through Philippians. If, you're, if, you, if, you, if you don't know what I'm talking about and you haven't been listening for a while, go back and listen to, I mean, starting in 1 Corinthians, I mean, that's preferred, but, you know, listen to our study in, in, in Philippians and to, to, to consider one another and stir up love in Philippi. So beautiful, so safe, beautiful, beautiful saints with Qualified pastors, qualified elders, qualified overseers, ministry leaders, and highly qualified. And it was safe for the saints. And verse 24, done there, beautiful. But for verse 24 to be applied in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no, it cannot be done. It is Dangerous because look at what's inside the church with the leaven, the sexual activity, the drugs, the alcohol, the extortion, the works of the flesh. How you know how dangerous it is for a young Christian? Not I don't mean I mean young in the faith, a baby Christian. Say a, a 25-year-old baby Christian just became a Christian a month ago. A baby Christian. Do you know how dangerous it is for a baby Christian to be with a another baby Christian who's been a Christian not for a month but for three years and they're still on milk? 
How do you expect that baby Christian to grow when he or she is exposed to the milk drinker who's been on milk for three years? Because you take the sexual activity, you take the alcoholism, you take the extortion and the works of the flesh that we see in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you take that group of milk drinkers And verse 24 applied to them, it's out of whack. You see? To stir up love within a fellowship like that, to stir up love in Laodicea, it cannot exclude Jesus Christ, whose word is above his name. The real Jesus, whose word is above his name. But in Philippi, very beautiful. You see, leadership matters. Look at Israel under Moses. Look at Israel under Joshua. You see? Look at Israel with Othniel. Ehud. You see? But without the overseer? Qualified? You see? Stirring up love in a fellowship like Philippi, where the formula is right, it's holy, it's beautiful. You see, Satan knows this. Satan knows this. And he fights tooth and nail to prevent this from happening. He will lure, he will attack, and prophetically, he will have his share of wins. Because it is prophesied. Power will be given him to prevail against the saints. Satan, he doesn't want love to be stirred within a family of God. Within the family of God, he doesn't want love to be stirred. The very love, the Philippi, the Philippi churches, Satan doesn't want Heirs of Abraham. You want to know a big reason why? Because look at verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You see? Satan doesn't want remnant saints doing good works. You know why? Because the remnant doing good works on offense, they're a threat to him. I mean, look at the book of Acts. They're a threat to him. He knows that the remnant is not like the leaven. He knows they have oil. He knows they come in power from on high. And so what does he do? He fights. He fights, absolutely. But so does the remnant. Look at verse 25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. Now, a lot of pastors, a lot of pastors teach this verse incorrectly in an anti-government stance that is, it's, it's fighting according to the flesh. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not pro any government that is increasingly anti-Christ. But 
Wisdom is required to navigate the times in which we live, but also to redeem the times as instructed in Holy Scripture. Pray. Pray you find a church where the formula is right. You know, if you're listening for the first time, you're like, what is this guy talking about? Formula? He keeps talking about formula. What is he talking about? Well, all these things are archived. All these studies, they're archived for you. Go back and listen to these studies. And, you know, in in, uh, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, listen to these studies. Very important because when you see and when you hear and when you understand the formula for pastoral epistles, the formula for pastors, the Lord leaked those letters. Because he wants us to know what are the qualifications. How do we know who it is safe to submit ourselves to? How do we know who watches out for our soul? And the Lord reveals. The Lord reveals. It's not run-of-the-mill pastor. You can't just go to any church. There are thousands and thousands of churches. You cannot go to just any church and submit to the pastor. You cannot. Because some of them are wolves. Some of them are hirelings. Some of them are disqualified. And in disqualification, you cannot have koinonia. The biblical koinonia. You can have a manufactured. But the biblical, where there's love feasts, where there's gifts of the Spirit, you cannot have. You see? You go back and you listen to those studies. If, if, if you've been walking with us for a while, you know what we're talking about. But if you're new, go back and listen. You see? Pray that you'll find a pastor who will watch out for your soul. And when you have this, a shepherd who is tasked to watch out for your soul, when you have it, stay there. Don't leave. This type of assembly, this formula that you, when you, when you have this, where the formula is right in sanctuary, you have babies. Yes, you have mature. You have the adolescents. You have mature. You have the deadly in that fellowship. Do not forsake that assembling of saints because that's holy. That's holy. But understand, prophetically speaking, judgment comes first to the church. And as apostasy spreads, which is prophesied to happen, as apostasy spreads, churches are the very ones who will forsake the Lord, just like we see in the book of Judges, when the Lord becomes forgotten. That's what happens in churches, when the Lord becomes forgotten, and He is no longer on the inside, He is on the outside, just like we see in Laodicea. But a fellowship where the formula is right? Probably a tiny church. Don't expect to have hundreds. Tiny church. Find such a place. You see? Find such a place. Not forsaking, in verse 25, the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. As is the manner of some. Now, remember Chloe? I'm so in love with Chloe. In Corinth. Picture the duff that Chloe got for her home fellowship. Picture the duff that Paul got as all the saints started to leave him. Remember? Hymenaeus and Alexander and all the saints in Asia left Paul. It is the manner of some to forsake the assembly of saints. 
but the assembly is beautiful and holy. But understand the formula. It's got to be right. And the assembly is beautiful and holy, but not run-of-the-mill assembly. The formula's got to be right. And it is very, very rare today. And it will be more rare tomorrow. And we see in verse 25, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. Very interesting as we see the tactics and the strategy of Satan. Because in these last days, how can we all, how can we exhort one another and even so much more. How can we amplify this exhortation when part of the strategy and tactics of Satan is to separate and divide? You see, we're living in a time where we can see the isolation of God's people. Satanic seduction. Isolating the saints. Why? So that the remnant cannot be together. You see the tactics? Remember the tactics we studied in the Old Testament? Remember Balak seeking counsel from Balaam? Hey, Balaam, how do I defeat Israel? You see? And part of this satanic strategy and satanic seduction is to avoid this from ever happening, this exhortation. And the Bible says, even much more, so much more, as you see the day approaching. And today, we can see the day approaching. But what else do we see? Saints are asleep. Leaven is rising. And the remnant, isolated. Isolated. You see? People take the bait. Hook, line, and singer. What is the remnant to do? What is the remnant to do? Let's look at verse 23 all over again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 26. For if we sin willfully. Now, this is a choice. If we sin willfully, this is a choice, a cognizant choice to willfully sin. This happens when a person takes advantage of God's grace. This is something that a, a Christian is never to do. Remember our study in the book of Romans, if you've been walking with us for a while? Should I sin so that grace can abound? No way, exclamation point. But what happens when Christians... Remember, the world is the world. Corinth is Corinth. What happens when Christians do take advantage of God's grace and mercy? Well, it is written here in verse 26. If we sin willfully 
after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I'm going to be blunt and I'll be point blank. I love you. Regarding the necessity and safety of abiding in Christ, Son of the Most High, I have a question for you. Are you in or out? That's it. In or out. Remember, we're in Hebrews 10. We are not in 1 Corinthians 3. We are not in Hebrews 5. We are not on milk. Hebrews 10, this is for the meat eaters. We're in deeper waters now. Point blank. Are you in or are you out? Because verse 26 says, If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You see, if the sacrifice doesn't remain, what remains? Look at verse 27. But a certain, this means it's definite, fearful. This means frightful, terrible, and exceedingly frightful. This is terror. Expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. You see? This is heavy. This is heavy. This is, I mean, verse 27, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. This is straight up hellfire and damnation. Christians, pastors, they get indignant with me. Very mad. You're using fear tactics. You're trying to scare people to heaven. Look, you're using fear tactics. Listen, this isn't a tactic. Hellfire, damnation, condemnation, and judgment, it is truth. Remember, the world is the world. Corinth is Corinth. The rioter here in verse 26 says, if we, if we, this is a warning for Christians. Oh, but Hebrews is written to Jews. Listen, in Christ, there is no Jew nor Gentile. The warning is for Christians. If we, if we, verse 26, if we, not if they do this, if that group over there does this, if they over there, those people way over there, those people, no, this is if we, the writer includes himself, if we, Oh, you're such a hardliner. You talk smack about everybody. You hate the Calvinists. You hate the Catholics. You're so full of hate. Listen. To the Calvinist, to the Catholic, to the Lutheran, to the Methodist, to the Jehovah's Witness, to the Mormon. Does verse 27, the certain and fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Does this verse of certain terrifying hellfire damnation, does it not concern you? Because what is presumed to be hatred isn't hatred at all. It's love. It's love. You're Lutheran? I love you. You're Catholic? I love you. Calvinist? I love you. 
Mormon, J-Dub, listen, I love you. If I hated you, I would say no, I would keep quiet. If I hated you, I would say nothing to warn you. That's if I hated you. That's hate. To not say anything, to not warn you. Listen, if your pastor doesn't pastor, and you know, noun and verb. If your pastor, noun doesn't pastor, verb. If your pastor doesn't pastor, if he doesn't shepherd according to holy formula, you must jump ship. It is not safe for your soul. It's very true that you may be among friends, close friends. You may laugh. You may, you know, have a giggle every now and then. Oh, they're my good friends. They're my good friends. I get it. But let's stop for a moment. You and me, I'm where I'm at. You're where you're at. And let's look at each other right in the eyes. You and me, eye to eye. Now, let's turn our gaze to the path that your pastor has you on. And let's look 10 feet down that path. Let's look 50 feet into the distance. Let's look miles into the distance. Let's look hundreds of miles into the distance. And if the formula of your pastor and your fellowship and you, if it doesn't align with scripture, the end of that path is exceedingly terrifying. It's damnation. It's damnation, condemnation. You see? This is the pastors. If the formula is not right in you, for pastors, if the formula is not right in you, repent and step down. You have no business at the pulpit. You see? Because the writer here in verse 26 doesn't say, hey, those guys over there. He doesn't say, no, this is for this people. No, this is for them over there. No, he says, if we, if we sin willfully in verse 26, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. This is when we get into Hebrews 6 territory. The re-crucifixion, re-crucifying of Jesus Christ, which cannot be done. And the Bible says it is impossible to restore such a one. That's Hebrews 6. Go back and listen to our study in Hebrews 6. That's why it sounds weird to hear it being said. And in one sense, it's painful to say. But in another sense, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for false teachings i'm thankful for it not for the false thing the false teachings the false teachers and abomination but i am thankful for the people because there's hope because if the formula is right and then a person walks away having received the knowledge of the truth Now that's dangerous territory. Now we're talking hellfire damnation. But if a person doesn't know the truth, 
that's, you know, where the Bible says it is impossible to restore such a person. That's what I'm hopeful. And if you're in a fellowship where the formula isn't right, I understand that you have friends and there's a closeness. Look at Laodicea. Laodicea was a body of people. Laodicea is a grouping of people which, yeah, it seems to be nice, but there's a problem. No Jesus. You see, no Jesus. Why in the world is he on the outside? You got to jump ship. This warning is to Christians. It's not for group number one over here, group number two over there, group number three, group number four. And a lot of false teachers, they like to reserve the book of Hebrews. They say, oh, the book of Hebrews, that's for the Jewish people. It's for the Jewish believers. It is not for the Gentile believers. You know why they say that? Because they don't want to teach hellfire damnation. They hide hellfire damnation. Fiery indignation. They hide it. Why? Because several reasons why. They're either the wolf, the servant of Satan, presenting themselves as ministers of righteousness. They're the hireling, concerned only for their money, their belly, their wallets. Or they're just stupid. They just don't know. You see? And that's why we stress formula. Because the qualified shepherds, they watch out for your soul. They kill wolves, metaphysically, but they kill wolves. And in obedience to the very Lord who called them, they watch out for your soul. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. Remember, we're in Hebrews 10. We're not in Hebrews 5, the milk. We're not in 1 Corinthians 3, the milk. This is spiritual pork chops. Verse 28, anyone, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. You see, sometimes I talk with believers. Oh, I don't like reading the Old Testament. There's too much judgment in the Old Testament. There's too much wrath in the Old Testament. So I just stick to the New Testament. Really? The New Testament, verse 29, says the punishment is worse. It's worse. I meant to, if the, if the judgment we see in the Old Testament is based on the weak and beggarly, how much more the fulfillment, and I speak of Jesus Christ, 
How much worse is the punishment for the person who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? That's why Paul, he says, don't quench the Spirit, translates as, don't extinguish the Spirit. Remember, verse 26 isn't, it's for those guys. It's for those guys. It's for them over there. It's for them over here. It's for them, them, them. No, it's for us. If we, verse 26, this is a warning to Christians. This is a warning to the church. Remember, once saved, always saved is unbiblical. The biblical formula is once saved, stay saved. Go back and listen to our study through Hebrews 5. You'll understand more. Once saved, stay saved. Because once saved, always saved, unbiblical. Verse 30, for we, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Remember Korah? I mean, if you've been walking with us for a, walking for a while with us, do you remember Korah? Oh, Moses, you think you're so cool. You think God speaks to you only and only you can say, thus saith the Lord. No, look, everybody, everybody, look at, follow me, follow me, follow me. Where's Korah now? He's dead. Where are those who followed him? They're dead too. The earth opened up and swallowed them, men, women, children. Why? Because they followed Korah. Let us not forget his death and those who followed him, their deaths. It happened inside the camp. You see? Verse 31 is if it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see? God sent his son not to condemn the world. He did it to save the world. But understand, he doesn't make robots. Because sometimes people, oh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, you Christians, why is this a good thing? Why is it good to fear the Lord? I like to think of a brake pedal in a car. Don't you think that's a scary thing to not have a brake pedal in a car? I mean, if you were to get a car, it's got, you know, all the, all the little gadgets over here, the honk honk, the vroom vroom, it's got everything. But there's no brake pedal? Don't you think that would be terrifying to have no brakes in a car? I've been in a car where the brakes went out. Where, you know, you, you slam the brakes and you figure, you know, you slam the brakes, brakes and you might skid. Where, you know, I slam the brakes, the car slowed down a little bit, and then all of a sudden you press harder and the brake pedal goes all the way to the floor and the car's still going on the freeway in rush hour traffic. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. And praise be to the Lord, there was an off-ramp, and I took the off-ramp and coasted my way to stop. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Understand, God doesn't make robots. This door of grace, it's not going to be open forever. And he is the one, God is the one who made a way in his son. 
And he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. You see? It's you and me who responds to his love. It's why we say jump ship. Jump ship. Welcome aboard. Get in the ark. It's Jesus. He is the ark of these last days. He is the ark of these last days. And now we're going to look at, in verse 32, we're going to look at writings that sound a whole lot like Paul. But you know what I think would be really awesome? I'm at. I have a hunch that the writer is probably Paul, but you know what would be really beautiful? If it's Timothy. <laughs> because remember, Timothy, from a young, a young lad, he was cleaved to Paul spiritually. A grasp of Old Testament teachings, going into synagogue, and who was, you know, a little shadow, who was with Paul, little shadow, little Timothy. And he has a grasp of Old Testament teachings and the Torah and the prophets and the, the psalmists, the poetic verses. And little Timmy, he had a good teacher. And you say, well, it sounds like Paul. It sounds like Paul. But understand when Paul is a pattern, it's quite lovely to see. I think that'd be so beautiful. I mean, when everybody's at the marriage, the marriage feast, I, I, I might have, you know, a little little whatever is being served but i might but i'm gonna be like a little social butterfly i'm gonna be asking you know who wrote he wrote hebrews can we settle this you know who wrote hebrews and paul might say okay it was me but little timmy might stand up hey it was me oh my goodness i can't wait i cannot wait to be with my family i cannot wait to see you i cannot wait to embrace you We see in verse 32, it's like, wow, this, this sounds a whole lot like Paul. In verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Remember, our, the book of Hebrews is written around 68 AD, 67, 68 AD. And remember, Jesus says, you know, count the cost, the cost of being a Christian. Don't expect to become a Christian and everything's fine and dandy. I mean, everything's fine and dandy in paradise. But in this life? Don't, don't, don't expect that. I mean, if you've been walking with us for a while and these studies are archived and you go back and you listen to our study in the book of Acts, when holy seed came to town planted by holy workers, it wasn't without uproar. I mean, this is something the writer is pointing to. It's not very far from the Christian walk today when a person comes to Christ and they are illuminated and praise be to the Lord that there is a person, a soul who comes to Christ who jumps ship and jumps on the ark. It's not uncommon for there to be a great struggle and sufferings and these will be amplified in the last days when a person comes to Christ in the midst of a rising antichrist culture. Family and friends will think you're so stupid. And Jesus says to count the cost. And these are things that we re remember and we see in the book of Acts. Great struggles with suffering. And we see in verse 33, partly, while you were made a spectacle by both reproaches or reviling and taunting, oh, you stupid Christians, you're so dumb. And they didn't call them Christians back then. They called them a people of the way. 
That's what they called them, a people of the way. And they were made a spectacle by both reproaches and tribulations. Oh, you Christians, you're so stupid. I'm going to beat you up. You're so dumb. You're so stupid. And we're going to beat you. And the tribulations came, the tribulation and persecution. They weren't just threatening the Christians. No, they acted on their threats. Remember in Acts 14, verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So reproach and tribulation is one part. Verse 33 in here in Hebrews 10, verse 33 in the beginning says, you know, partly. But the other part continues here in this verse. And partly why you became companions of those who were so treated. You see, companion here is koinonos in the Greek, where we get, you know, koinonia, derivative of the word koinonia. Today you see a class, classes of Christians. You can see it today. Christians who are friends with the world, they don't ruffle any feathers, and the world loves them back. But there's another class. It's those who are hated by the world. Those who are hated by leaven. Listen. Choose you. Choose to be companions of the latter. The companions of those who are hated. This is the way. Remember verse 33. Partly while you were made a spectacle, but both by reproaches and tribulations and partly... While you became companions of those who were so treated for you had compassion on me in my chains. Wow, it sounds like Paul. Sounds a whole lot like Paul when he wrote of his own chains. Could be somebody in his tiny bubble. I mean, if you're listening, like, what are you talking about? Tiny bubble. Go back and listen to our studies. First, first Corinthians. Start in first Corinthians and get yourself caught up to, to Hebrews 10 and you'll understand. By the time you get to verse 34, you'll get it. You'll understand. In verse 34, you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. You see, the pillaging of your goods, your stuff. And the writer is reminding, reminding the people. Remember, verse 32, recall the former days. Remember, remember, remember. How is it that the plundering of goods can be joyfully accepted? How? It's with a new heart, with a new mind. Because the law says, okay, kill them. I mean, when there's a, you know, when there's a, a breaking of the law to cover, covet another person's stuff, okay, when there's a breaking of the law, kill them. That's what the law says. But remember, the law is the shadow. The law is inefficient, ineffective, the loopholes. The law has an inability, but the law of faith the law of love, the law of Christ, which is a fulfillment of the law of Moses. When there's a new heart and a new mind, there is always a newness of thinking with a new heart and a new mind. The old heart, the old mind, that thinks the old way. But a new heart and a new mind, it thinks entirely different. It thinks eternally you see, the world hates God. 
The world hates the things of God. The world hates the people of God. And when the world hates you, when leaven hates you, rejoice. Let it confirm who you are in Christ and stand firm in Christ. And we see here in verse 34, as the writer says in verse 33 or verse 32, to recall the former days, how in verse 34, you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves. Not in this world. It's not here. He says in heaven. It's a promised place where a crown awaits you. A crown that has your name on it. And it awaits you. But there's a very specific formula. It's easy, but very specific. Verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance. See, it's not a bad thing that the writer is bringing this up. Not at all. Not at all. Excuse me. It's not a bad thing at all. There is need for endurance. See, endurance is lacking. And let's be straight up. Let's be straight up. Today, endurance is lacking. I was listening recently to an interview of a professional athlete and there was an area of his ability that needed to be improved. And, you know, for his ability, there was more speed that was, I mean, he's a professional athlete. There was, he was already fast and he already had like, you know, like beyond average speed, but he wanted more speed. And through his team of trainers, they were able to isolate a specific muscle group in his legs and that would improve his speed and ability. So what they did is they trained, they trained very specifically and very targeted. We're going to isolate this muscle group and we're going to work this muscle group very targeted. And in the course of time, his speed was improved. His ability was improved and more wins followed. We live in an era today where everybody is so sensitive, ultra sensitive. Everyone is easily offended. It's another sign of the last days because the Bible says everyone will be offended in the last days. A shepherd says, you have need of endurance. And today, oh, how dare you say that? I'm offended. How dare you call me out? How dare you say I have need of endurance? But let's be straight up. We can realize and see that, yes, there is need of endurance, especially in these times where hearts are failing and apostasy is on the rise. Saints today have need of endurance. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the exact same thing. For you have need of endurance, he says in verse 36. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You see, the promise of God, it's a sure thing. Remember, it is impossible for God to lie. He has promises. And yes, you and me, we can lean on those promises. He has promises for you. But 
But there are effectuators of promise. It's so easy. It's so simple. But very specific. Obedience to his word. Remember, understanding the covenants and rules of engagement and walking in the new covenant according to the Spirit and abiding in Christ. It's so simple. Very specific, but simple nonetheless. And we have the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Paracletus. You see? So that in verse 36, after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now the writer quotes Habakkuk here. Habakkuk in verse 37 here, in closing, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just, notice verse 38, the just shall live by faith. Very interesting. Habakkuk, Habakkuk, another friend of God, prophet of the Lord. He speaks about faith. Faith. The vast majority, they did not have the mixture of faith because they were in the law. But in the law, there is a very specific passageway where a person can learn to fear the Lord. The next passageway, a person can learn to love the Lord. And then another chamber where there is faith. Fear the Lord. Trust the Lord, love the Lord, and then faith. Habakkuk in the Old Testament, he writes about faith. The just shall live by faith. You see? But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, I love this. I love this so much. You might, you're like, what? How does this guy love this? If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And he says it's a good thing. I love it so much. You know why? Because God makes it so easy. He makes it so easy. He says, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You know how it's easy? Don't draw back. Straight up, don't draw back. It's so easy. Let us together move on to perfection. Verse 39 in closing, but we, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And that's what I say to you, my beloved friend, my brothers, my sisters in Christ. That's what I say to you. We are not of those who draw back. We move forward among those who believe to the saving of the soul. And I say, onward, onward, onward to paradise, to paradise. That's our journey to the beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.